Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. It's the last chapter in Luke. If you hit John, you went too far. We're going to be in verses 33 through 43. Luke 24, 33 through 43. Luke writes, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. It's an incredible passage as we're uh, finishing off the um, section on the road to Emmaus that Pastor Sam's been leading us through. Now we see Luke transition a bit and give us some evidence for the resurrection. The resurrection was a real event in history Hopefully you know that. If not, today is going to be all of the proof that I could fit into 45 minutes to prove that. I'll start my timer. Everything in our life as Christians is based on the resurrection. Christianity was birthed out of it. This is day one of Christianity right here. As we see Christ, this is still on Sunday, appearing to his disciples. This was a watershed event that marks a major division point in human history. You fall on one side or the other of the crucifixion in time, but you also fall on one side or the other in your hearts. Do you believe it? Is it true? I want to just recap Pastor Sam's message a few weeks ago on the implications of the resurrection for us. Why does it matter? I mean, this is an incredible event that Jesus rose from the grave, but why does it matter to us? Well, here's five. Number one, Christ's lordship is proven. So if Christ has authority over the dead, then he has authority over your life. Number two, the sufficiency of his sacrifice is proven. If Christ had stayed, died, when, when we look back in his Um, gospels and try to believe his messages about atonement for sin and that sort of thing, we wouldn't be too sure if it was real. We wouldn't be too sure if God had really, God the Father, who's the justifier, had accepted the sacrifice, and we wouldn't know what to expect when we die. Number three, we have a living Savior, and he is now in heaven interceding for us on our behalf, and he's also able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he is alive. Number four, regeneration and sanctification is possible through the power of the resurrection. So in other words, the same power that rose Christ from the grave is the power that regenerated your spirit, right? That's, that's a big power. And it's the power that's at work in you every single day to sanctify you. When you open your Bible in the morning to read it, that power is what is illuminating the scriptures to you, making it clear. Number five, we can base our confidence on our own resurrection. We too will live with Christ in heaven forever. 
So just five of the implications of the resurrection. You know, when Jesus said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword, he meant it. And this point in history, the resurrection is really what divides men. Do they believe it or not? It divides families. It divides countries. It even divides churches as, as we have so-called Christians that spiritualize the resurrection and say that it wasn't a real event. J.I. Packer defines it this way. He says, the resurrection was a divine act involving all three persons of the Godhead. It was not just a resuscitation of the ruined physical frame that was taken down from the cross for burial. So the nine or 10 resurrections that you see in scripture, uh, you got Lazarus, you got um, Tabitha in Acts 10, you got Eutychus. Remember he fell out of the window because Paul was preaching too long. Well, Paul raised him from the dead, but he really just resuscitated him, right? Because Eutychus died again. Lazarus died again. Jesus did not die again. So this resurrection is just in a whole nother category than anything else that we see in scripture. We got to remember that this resurrection, and I'll just continue reading Packer was rather a transformation of Jesus's humanity that enabled him to appear, to vanish and move unseen from one location to another. And pastor Sam asked me to preach this. I said, are you letting me preach the sermon where Jesus walks through a wall? That's incredible. So I was excited. Now, what is interesting about the resurrection is that usually people stay dead. We have a lot of evidence to support that, right? And so if you're a betting man and you want to bet on, oh, the resurrection probably didn't happen, that would be a, a decent bet, except for the fact that it did. But it is this resurrection that skeptics of the gospel should pay attention to. They should focus on the resurrection. If they want to disprove God and remove themselves from underneath his authority, then they just need to disprove the resurrection. And I mean, they have tried to do that for thousands of years. Like I said, even so-called Christians try to do this and say it was just a spiritualized event and Christ lives on in me and in you. But that's not true. This was an actual physical resurrection that happened in history. So you may hear some objections to the resurrection in your life. Uh, if you're evangelizing or, or talking to, um, to people in the community, uh, you'll hear various objections to it. I heard one this week on campus as I was studying this in God's providence. And the first one is called the swoon theory. And so just to put it in a more um, common vernacular. I was just talking to a guy on campus and there were some street preachers there. It wasn't David Grantham in their group. It was another group um, that, well, well, we'll not you know, speak on their methods right now, but basically this guy was really upset at what he was hearing and he wasn't a Christian. So we were just talking about God and where he's at with all that. And he was saying, oh man, I just, you know, I believe in science and it's just hard to, to buy into that sort of thing. And so because I'd been studying this, I said, man, have you ever looked into the resurrection? Because if you can disprove the resurrection, then you, know, you don't have to believe any of it. If you're a, like a reasonable guy and you say you're into science, because we have a ton of verified evidence about the resurrection. And he just said, man, he probably just fell asleep and then woke up later. I was like, oh, well, that's actually the swoon theory. I'm glad you said that. So the swoon theory just states that Jesus went into a coma when they crucified him. And then three days later, he was in a cool tomb and they laid these you know, magic essential oils and spices and herbs on him. And he woke up, he appeared, somehow he got the stone away because in their world, there's no room for miracles. So he got the stone away just in his you know, physical um, humanity. 
He um, scared the guards away somehow. They thought they saw an angel, but it was just a man who's probably limping out because he's got you know nails, um, nail scars through his feet and his hands. He then appears to Mary, the other two. He walks all the way to Emmaus, which is at least seven miles. He walks back seven miles because then in our passage, he sees the 11 in the room. Uh, he walks up to Galilee. He, I mean, for the next 30, 40 days, he's appearing to people on feet that have been driven with nails. The worst part about the swoon theory, though, other than it's impossible, is that it makes Jesus out to be a liar, a deceiver, a magician, you know, an escape artist. And so it wouldn't make any sense to believe the swoon theory. You might as well, if you're going to open up to miracles and improbabilities, you might as well just believe what the Bible says, that he rose from the grave. A second thing you may hear, I've never heard this one, but um, in my research this came up, it's the hallucination theory. And people say because their savior had died and they, they weren't you know, aware he was going to die, even though he told them many times, that they just made up in their minds that he had risen from the grave. And they were so sad and despondent that they just hallucinated that they had seen him. But log logically, this makes no sense because one, they had no clue that he was going to rise from the grave. Two, they didn't believe anyone who told them they had risen when they had heard it. And not to mention, hallucination events never happened to over 500 people. So this, once again, is a very weak explanation of the resurrection. A third one is more philosophical. Um, it's probably more of a you know, popular one you may hear in, in different, um, different ways. But basically what it says is that we should accept as true the explanation of a seemingly miraculous event that is the most likely explanation. So whatever most likely explains it, um, an example, tree falls in the woods. Uh, one person says, oh, it was rotten in the, in the inside and so it fell over. That's person one. Person two says, well, a meteorite came down and hit it. And then a second meteorite came down and hit that meteorite and it just disintegrated and that's why the tree fell. You're gonna believe the most likely explanation, which is that it was rotten. This guy, Britt Hume, uh, who's a skeptic, uh, but a, a scholar, I guess you could call him a philosopher. He says it this way, the plain consequence is, and it is a general maxim worthy of our attention, that no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. Sorry, just got to bear with me here. Philosophy is not fun. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately considered with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived or that the fact which he relates should really have happened. Not done yet. I weigh the one miracle against the other and according to the superiority which I discover, I pronounce my decision and always reject the greater miracle if the falsehood of his testimony would be more miraculous than the event which it relates, then and not till then can he pretend to command my belief or opinion. Whew. Don't let flowery language deceive you. All, all he's saying in this mental gymnastics is that since resurrections never happened, then it probably didn't happen. That's all he's trying to say. Now, this may be a good rule of thumb to follow in your normal life when you're making normal decisions that don't have a lot of consequence behind them. Um, but this one uh, is actually very significant because it, it decides your eternal future and where you spend eternity. 
And so it may be likely that at one point in history, God has intervened, as he said he would, resurrected his son, and he now continues to live in his resurrected form. This is, after all, what Acts 2 says. You know, sometimes when someone's arguing with you, and Romans 1 tells us that people know that God exists. They're completely aware from the beginning of creation that he has power and he is God. And they know that, but they suppress the truth in immorality. They just don't want it to be true. They don't want to be under that rule, and so they suppress it. And you get answers like this. But Acts 2... 24 says, God raised him up. This is a Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he has a different line of thought there that it's actually impossible for God to stay dead. And that's how Peter handles it. And so we can say that too. R.C. Sproul said it was impossible for Christ not to have been raised using the double negative just to emphasize we have so much proof of the resurrection. And we're, we stand here 1,993 years later and no one has ever been able to fully disprove it, although they've attempted in numerous ways. Acts 17, 31, you know, Paul's uh, preaching in Athens to a bunch of pagans. And he says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection is actually proof of everything else that God has spoken. We have to believe this. It's just some of the evidence that we have. Number one, historically verified by even secular scholars, we know that the execution was real. Jesus was crucified on a cross at the hands of Roman authorities, and he died. We have Luke's, eyewitness, or Luke's account of eyewitnesses that say that blood and water came out from the, the spear um, in his side. And that shows us, even in a, a medical journal can verify, based on that evidence, that because the water and the blood was there, that shows that the pericardial sac in your heart filled up and it actually stopped beating. So they can even verify just based on that evidence. We know for a fact that we have an empty tomb. We know that because, for many reasons, but just for one, the uh, Roman authorities or the Roman guards, they ran away to the Jewish authorities to tell them that it was empty. Right. So we have their own testimony, and they have... They, I could say they're neutral in this, but no one's neutral in this. You either want Christ to be risen or you don't. And so the Roman soldiers went and told the Jewish authorities, and the Jewish authorities told them to lie about it. So we have that testimony. We have tons of eyewitness accounts from this. I mean, just from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul just lists out all the eyewitnesses, over 500. And it's important to know, back then, eyewitness accounts are like DNA records now. We don't have DNA records 2,000 years ago. Eyewitnesses are the verifiable things that that's how we know anything happened in history was eyewitnesses. Even critics of Christianity and critics of the New Testament text, like they're scholars too, and they study the text to try to disprove it. This guy, Bart Ehrman, is one of the you know, popular ones. He'll even concede to the fact that Jesus was definitely a real person and the disciples definitely thought that they saw him. Now, he obviously tries to explain it away, but he knows based on the way Things were written and verified in antiquity. This is how we know, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all those guys were real. Based on all those same rules that we use across the board of antiquity, Jesus was real and that tomb was empty and his disciples definitely thought that they saw him. 
Number four, we have early records. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day. So this is a testimony that Paul received, and he wrote this, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in 53 to 55 at the latest. So at this point in history, just 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, the, the oral tradition of the resurrection is already being circulated and being handed down to Paul, and then he's delivering it to those who he's um, evangelizing as of first importance. So we got to focus here on the resurrection is what he's saying. And he lists out all that happened. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So if you want to verify this and you're, you're in the Corinthian church at this time, you can just go find some of those eyewitnesses and make sure that this actually happened. And they say, yeah, I was there and I saw it. So it's all verified. And lastly, just as as we, we go through this short list of some evidences, we have the emergence of the church. No one event has ever affected the world as much as the resurrection of Christ. You take these fearful disciples that we have their testimony that they were, were, were gathering in fear of the Jews behind locked doors, and all of a sudden, they turn around and start going out and, and evangelizing in the very town where the Jews wanted to kill them, right? The Jewish authorities. This makes no sense. And they were doing it all under fear of death. And most of them did die as martyrs. Actually, all the, the original apostles died as martyrs. And so this just doesn't happen for a lie. People don't die for a lie. So all of this evidence we have, and there's much more, is able to satisfy every single reasonable person about the truth and um, the, the truth of the resurrection. Remember about why Luke is writing this book. It's been a while since we've been in Luke chapter one, but just turn there, trip down memory lane to Luke chapter one, and he sets out his intent for why he's writing this book. Remember, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus, but we know that Luke wants him to be convinced of these things. So verse three says, it seemed good to me, verse, uh, chapter one, verse three, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke's purpose in writing this book was that we would have certainty as well, that these things are true, including the resurrection. And we see this in the beginning of his next book, Acts, that he wants them to have certainty as well. So right now in our text, he's closing his argument. Basically, this is the last piece of evidence that all of these things are true from the beginning to the end, from Christ's um, entrance onto the scene to his death, now his resurrection. And these are the things that the early church is now hearing. This is what's being passed down. And he's displaying to us one of his final proofs. He's probably right at the end of his scroll. You know, back then, scrolls only had uh, so much length. And so Luke's right at the end of it, and he's about to start Acts. So he's just trying to fit them all in here, all these proofs. 
And so everything that we're reading today is that. It's Luke proving to us that this actually happened and we can be certain of it. So the title of the message today is simply The Certainty of the Resurrection. If I were on campus doing this, it'd be called the one where Jesus walks through a wall. So I've divided it into three points. Verses 33 through 35 is mounting eagerness. 36 and 37 is miraculous experience. And then 38 to 43 is manifold evidence. Let's look at verse 33. And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And so they is Cleopas. Remember, Cleopas is the guy with his unnamed partner. Could possibly be his wife. We have no idea. They're walking to Emmaus. Remember, that was a seven-hour, or I'm sorry, a seven-mile walk. Uh, On Friday, I actually took a seven-mile walk just to see how long it would take. And it's about two hours and 20 minutes on a flat surface. Uh, with, and I had no podcast or anything like I normally do um, because they wouldn't have had that, right? And I was just curious how long it would take. So you're talking about two and a half hours. And I, I know that Jerusalem is actually up on a hill. So they turned around and went up to Jerusalem. So you probably got, I mean, look at our picture there. That's like a nice um, display of what it may have looked like getting up the hill. And so it was probably more like a three-hour trip to get them back up there. So they were determined, though, because remember what had just happened is they had become clear that Christ was alive because he broke the bread and they saw him right before their eyes and then he vanished. And so it was just their first inclination to run back to Jerusalem and tell their friends that Jesus was alive. It's so interesting because why are they walking away? We don't really know. They may have quit on Christ. They may have said, man, I guess this guy wasn't what we thought. And so they given up, walking back. Well, if, that, if that's true, then they had changed their mind. Like Christ had become real to them. They were certain that he was alive. And they were, they were going back to tell their friends. It says they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. Now, the 11 is just a way to, to refer to the apostles. There may have been 10 there or even a few less. We know for a fact that Thomas was absent because John 20 Uh, 24 tells us that. That's the parallel account of of what we're reading here. But it says that they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. Uh, John adds in the details that the doors were locked and that it was for fear of the Jews. And then we see in the original language that the gathered together, it shows that something was acting on them. It wasn't their decision to gather together, but this is the providence of God through their fear that has gathered them in this room so that Jesus can appear to them. So he's just setting the scene for what's about to happen. 34, saying the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Now we got to read this really carefully. When I first read this, I assumed that the two were talking, right? The two that they had just come from Emmaus, they had ran the whole way or walked really fast, but they were probably out of breath. They knock on the door, somebody opens it, and they say, the Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. But that doesn't make a lot of sense, because when did he appear? How do they know that he appeared to Simon? Did Jesus tell him that on the roads? It said he just opened up the scriptures to him. It didn't say he also told him about Simon. But what's happening here is actually... It's not the two that's speaking, it's the 11 saying this. So instead, they run the whole way, they knock on the door, or they open it, and immediately they're greeted by the 11, 
And they're saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So it's the leaven that are speaking here. Now, I don't want you to imagine like some like stiff, like in unison, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. This is probably one spokesman that just shouts it out, but he's representative of the 11. And that's important to, for us to um, harmonize this with Mark's account. Because Mark 16 he just gives us two sentences. Sixteen twelve says, after these things, he appeared in another form to them as they were walking into the country. So that's probably the same account where he was, they were walking to Emmaus. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. So how do we harmonize this? Well, we have a lot of people involved here. We have at least the 10 plus probably more gathered with them. And we have a representative group um, by the 11, and one person has just said, at least, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They did not all proclaim this in unison. Their faith was all over the place. They were like a ping, you ever try to chase a ping pong ball through a house? Like, that's the disciples. They're just like, oh, I've heard this, but I don't believe this. And so their faith is all over the place. And it was different among all the disciples. And this is why the gospel accounts, that's why we have four. It's amazing that we have four because it gives us all sorts of perspectives on responses to Christ. And so Mark is keying in on that no one believed, but there were people in their belief. So Mark is keying in on the ones who didn't believe and Luke is keying in on the ones who did. So what did the ones who believed say? Well, first they emphasize Lord. So Lord is emphasized in, in the Greek, which just shows that they hadn't given up on him. As soon as they knew that he had risen, they, he was still their Lord and he still had authority over them. This word indeed, we see just two other, I mean, there's many places, but just the two that were significant. If you turn back one page in Luke 23, at the end of the crucifixion account, in verse 47, it says, now when the centurion, and a centurion was the Roman guard that was in charge of the crucifixion, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. That word certainly is that same indeed. John eight thirty six says, if the spirit sets you free, you are free indeed. So they were certain. Someone was certain at this moment that Christ had risen and that he had appeared to Simon. Now, we don't have any other details about this. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that he had appeared to Cephas, Simon, but sometime between when Peter was at the grave and found the empty tomb till now, Christ appeared to him. So Peter's probably in the room. He may be the one proclaiming it in third person, which would be a little odd. But we know for certain that Christ has appeared to him and had told the 11 and they were just discussing it. It was probably a very exciting time in the room. And then the two come in and they want to tell the story, but they got to get this story first from them. And so verse 35 is them doing that. It says, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now we just have one sentence here to describe that, but this, I mean, this could have taken an hour. You can imagine like an exciting story you want to tell and, and you're like, and then we were walking down and then they have a question about it. And so you get on a rabbit trail and you got to talk about that for a little bit. And so they're just probably having the time of their lives. And you can just feel the anticipation and the eagerness that is rising in them 
as they're just probably thinking, what is Jesus going to do next? Because a lot of them hadn't seen him yet. And in this, we see just a range of responses, which is always true of the gospel message. People respond to it wherever they're at in, in their journey, in their faith journey at that time in different ways. And it's important for us to be there to push them along. So next we see the miraculous experience in verse 36. It said, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So this was that same evening we see in John 20, 19 through 25 in his account. He adds in what Luke omits. You know, he, namely, he says it was evening on the first day and that the door was shut. And it's typical for John to add in more details because remember, he wrote his gospel 30 years after these first three gospels were written. And he did that so that people would believe. But he did that because he had already seen, John was an old man when he wrote, and he was an old pastor when he wrote his, his gospel. And he had already seen heresies creep into the church. And one of those was that Jesus wasn't actually God. And so if you read the gospel of John, the main theme throughout the whole thing is that Jesus is God. And so John adds those details to add more proof to help shore up the certainty even more because he's seen like, man, how do these guys not get it? And so he adds those in. But Luke just simply says that Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And he says this to imply that he didn't walk through the doors, but that it was miraculous. And we know that because the disciples think that they saw a spirit, so it was obviously a miraculous event. It wasn't a normal just opening the door and walking through. They were probably reclining at table, as we see in Mark 16, 14, as all this was going on, you know, long story happening, everybody's excited, they probably sit down. That doesn't mean necessarily they were eating, uh, but they were reclining at table, we see in Mark 16, just to set the scene a little bit. But when Jesus stands among them, he says, peace to you. Now, this is a normal salutation back then. It's like us saying, hey, how's it going? But this is real peace. This is the truest peace that they'll ever get that came from Christ. The peace that he just earned from his death, from his crucifixion, and now his resurrection. But they don't really deserve the peace, do they? I mean, they had doubted. They had disbelieved. Uh, they had given up, maybe, in their hearts. And they're just with each other right now because they're afraid that they're going to die, too. They don't deserve peace. But it's God's glory to give it to us, to forgive sin, even though we don't deserve it. But they didn't accept it. They didn't receive the peace because they were startled and frightened. They had thought they had seen a spirit. The startled and frightened, they just couldn't believe their eyes. They were like, well, who, who is this guy? Where'd he come from? What's, what's going on? But in a sense, they know that it's him. Clearly, Jesus is back, but they just can't believe it. Um, Acts 12, remember, it tells the story of Peter. He was in prison, and the angel let him out, and he goes back to the house where they were praying for him to um, get out. And Rhoda, the servant girl, sees Peter, but she couldn't believe it. Let's just look at it. Ver uh, Acts 12, because what she says really, um, it really paints a picture for probably what they're feeling right here. Acts 12, 14. 
Well, 13, just to set the context a little bit. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. Now, they were just in prayer for Peter to, to be released from prison. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. What? Why didn't she let Peter in? They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Right? So they thought it was a spirit too. And so this is what they're feeling right now, being startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a spirit. And they just had wrong expectations. They should have known that Jesus was coming back. They were just talking about it. And yet something happened that didn't make sense at first. And they immediately jumped to anxiety or fear. So Jesus understands He'd offered them peace. They didn't receive it. Instead, they received anxiety and fear. But he doesn't give up on them. Verse 38 shows us the manifold evidence. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So first he addresses their mood, their disposition. Why are you troubled? Like, he knows why they're troubled. Jesus never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. And why do doubts arise in your heart? What, he, what he's really saying is stop being afraid. Lay aside the terror you're feeling. Regain the possession of your mind. You got to think, like, what, what do you think is happening right now? Anxiety blinds us and it makes us to where we cannot see God clearly. But God knows all our thoughts and he's going to lead us and give us what we need to regain our faith. The second question, why do doubts arise in your heart, addresses their lack of perception. They're not seeing clearly. Calvin, John Calvin, I think this will come better from him than if I were to try to say this. He says, Christ reproves another fault, which is, that by the variety of their thoughts, they throw difficulties in their own way. By saying that thoughts arise, he means that the knowledge of the truth is choked in them in such a manner that seeing they do not see. For they do not restrain their wicked imaginations, but on the contrary, by giving them free scope, they permit them to gain the superiority. So they had clarity, but they lacked certainty. That's what Christ is building in them right now is certainty. They became afraid because of something that happened to them and then doubt set in. He said, Calvin continues, we find it to be true that as when the sky has been clear in the morning, clouds afterwards arise to darken the clear light of the sun. So when we allow our reasonings to arise with excessive freedom in opposition to the word of God, that's key. What formerly appeared clear to us is withdrawn from our eyes. Now, he says, we have a right, indeed, when any appearance of absurdity presents itself, like this miraculous experience, to inquire by weighing the arguments on both sides. So, okay, let me just look at the facts. What's happening right now? I know that Jesus said that he was going to come again, or that he was going to rise from the dead. Um, I've already heard from Mary, the other two women, from the two um, Oh, and he apparently appeared to Simon that he is risen. Maybe it's Jesus, right? If they could have just paused and considered these things. 
Calvin says, we must observe sobriety and moderation, lest the flesh exalt itself more highly than it ought and throw out its thoughts far and wide against heaven. We just have to be careful with what we think and what conclusions we draw and make sure that they're in line with God's word. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Second, or, yeah, Second Peter 1.20. We don't need to doubt. Jesus says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So Jesus is going to address their doubts and their trouble by giving them evidence. He's engaging their reason, right? For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. He's engaging their physical senses of touch and sight. He doesn't ask us to believe with blind faith. We can use logic to come to the conclusion that God is real. In fact, we all know that God is real, as Romans 1 tells us. But we can also use our logic to see that Christ is a real figure and that he really died and really rose from the grave. And we can commit our lives to him with certainty. But this word, touch me and see, turn to 1 John because you'll see, you know John was in the room and he uses this experience again in his letter and if you don't know, the book of 1 John is all about certainty. He wants his believers to know that they're in Christ and to be certain that these things are true. It's all about assurance. And so this is how he starts. And he's, I guarantee he's thinking back to this night. Verse 1, 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which is Jesus' voice, which we have seen with our eyes, for the three years that they did ministry with him that night in the room, which we have looked upon, looked upon, looked into. They really assessed, like, is this really Christ? They asked some questions. They, they poked and prodded, figuratively speaking, except for Thomas. They've touched with their hands. This word means to, to handle, to really make sure that this is real. They they wanted to know for certain that this was what they were, their eyes were seeing. Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy or your joy may be complete. John wants us now and knows that we can, our doubts can be satisfied, even though we weren't there in that room, by the written testimony of this night. And this is how he pastored his church. What's incredible here is that Jesus still had the scars. Right? This was a resurrected body. I mean, he can vanish appear, walk through walls, or not even have to walk through walls, just appear where he wants to appear. And, you know, we all have scars or certain things on our bodies that we may not want or love, or maybe they remind us of a time in our life that we made a bad decision. Speaking about myself right now, and I have a scar that I'd love to not be there anymore because I get a lot of questions about it. And I don't want to answer it because it reminds me of a time when I didn't know Christ like I do now and when I wasn't walking in certainty and in clarity. But Christ bore the marks to build our faith. He didn't have to have the marks in his hands anymore and his feet. 
but he chose that they would be there so that our faith could be built up. Verse 40, and when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is incredible grace and condescension from our Lord. This Philippians 2, consider other people and their interests more important than yourself. That's what Christ is doing here. He's the epitome of that. He's our example of humility, of considering others as more important than yourselves. But at this point, this is Jesus without a doubt. Disciples are sure of it. Readers should be convinced of it. But verse 41 says, and while they still disbelieved for joy, what? Why? And were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? But this disbelief for joy is a figure of speech. In other words, it's too good to be true. This disbelief for joy arrived from some faith. That's why there's joy there. It's not a willing, obstinate faith. It's just a, um, it's a marveling. It's an amazement. It's, it's, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But the point here is that we should be skeptical of strong emotions. Jesus, Jesus doesn't let them just sit there in their amazement and not talk to them or do anything. We haven't been saved and become certain of all these truths just so we can sit and marvel and be emotional. We should actually be skeptical of strong emotions. Even if they start good, they'll tend to lead us off the path. And we know that because Jesus addresses this. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? So he doesn't want them staying in this state. I was talking to Chad a while back about um, some methods that he uses when he's counseling people with anxiety, PTSD. Can I share this? Grounding? I am now. <laughs> I mean, it's a really simple thing. It's nothing, you know, nothing too crazy. But basically, if someone's retelling a story and they're getting anxious, he just has them drink water. And it's called grounding. And so through that, they, um, they take a deep breath they process it a little more and they're able to just slow down and think and use their mind, regain the possession of their mind. And then he's able to help them process it biblically at that point. What is true? So I think Jesus might be doing that here. Have you anything to eat? He's causing them to stop marveling and start thinking, right? Because he's about to give them the great commission and he needs their minds engaged. Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus has no need of food at this point. Certainly no need for smelly fish in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not like oceanfront property. This fish probably wasn't the freshest. Some skeptics even say this can't be true because there was no fish in Jerusalem. There's definitely fish in Jerusalem. Um, they have the fish gate after all. And... Um, I mean, they were a fishing community, right? So there were certainly fish in Jerusalem, but it probably wasn't the best. But Jesus, because he's devoted to our interests and willing to build up our faith, whatever it takes, he ate the fish. He took it, he ate it, it vanished, right? He didn't have to digest it or dispose of it. It just vanished, which shows you what our bodies will be like. Uh, Philippians 3 tells us our bodies will be like his when we go to glory. But all of this was to make them certain that what they were seeing was real. 
So church, you have everything you need to be certain of Christ's resurrection beyond any reasonable doubt. You have everything you need to be certain of his life, his perfect life, his, uh, his death, his crucifixion, his teachings are true. All the epistles and their teachings about him are true. The Old Testament is true because he uses it himself in his own ministries. We can trust it. He affirmed it. You don't have to doubt that Christianity is, if it's true or false, it's absolutely true and it can be verified. No one's ever been able to disprove the resurrection. So if you have a friend, maybe you're evangelizing and they, they seem like they just can't believe it because of science, urge them to look into the resurrection. Look into it with them. Now this is for reasonable people, not those who are just suppressing the truth with philosophy. We can be certain that Jesus was killed by Roman crucifixion. We can be certain that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. We can be certain that disciples were left behind. They were discouraged. They were hopeless. They were fearful. They had no plan. They didn't know what to do. We can be certain that the tomb was found shortly after his death empty. Disciples were certain, and we can be certain that they had an encounter with a risen Jesus. And it testifies further that they were radically transformed after they met Jesus. They went from huddling up into a room to sharing the gospel to the whole world. And it started right there in Jerusalem. If you wanted to get rid of the whole Christian anything, they could have just produced a body right then and there in Jerusalem where it happened. But these disciples went out under perjury of death and preached the gospel of the resurrection of Christ. And it transformed the entire world. All of this took place in the easiest place to disprove it if they were able to. So this is so important for us to grasp and to be certain of the resurrection. And we all want to be on the winning team. And this is it. And the resurrection of Christianity is our MVP. It's our ace in the hole. It makes Christianity unbeatable, invincible. No one can disprove this. So believe it, please, and proclaim it. Proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And I know in a room this size, there are people that don't believe it yet. You're not walking um, with forgiveness of your sins yet. Look into the resurrection. It's, it can prove it true beyond any reasonable doubt. And I pray that you would ask the Lord to open your eyes to it, that you'd become clear that it is all true and become certain and begin living for him. Let's pray.